Growing in God's Word and learning how to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. Is that what Paul means when he says you gotta you gotta work out your salvation? Does he mean it's not quite finished and there's there's more I got to do? No. That would be a work salvation, not a salvation that works. Question What's the difference between Christianity and virtually every other religion in the world? Answer. Other religions are works-based, meaning your salvation is obtained through what you do. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to this week's Crosswalk. We're working our way through the book of Philippians in our series entitled Heartbeat. And today we come to Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 30. Actually, we're going to spend a couple of weeks looking at those verses. But in today's message, Pastor Clay is only going to cover verses 12 and 13. And as you'll hear, there's plenty to talk about. Now, maybe that's a good place to just stop and remind you that it's not a bad idea to occasionally just back up and ask myself, do I want to honor God with my life? As I said a moment ago, salvation is a free gift from God. But as you'll hear Pastor Clay talk about today, the Apostle Paul informs the church in Philippi that it's imperative that they work out their salvation. Just exactly what that means and what it doesn't mean is part of what Pastor Clay has to share with us today. We're always glad for folks to join us as we continue our study and discover our heartbeat, Jesus Christ. ashamed to tell this story, but I tell it um, as a demonstration of the grace of God. And some of you have heard me tell this story before, I think. But when I was 16 or 17 years old, I was out one night with a group of my buddies. Sounds like a country song's about to start, doesn't it? (laughs) I was out with a group of my buddies. It was late. It was uh, 1.30. 2 o'clock in the morning. Uh, and uh, if you don't know this, not much good happens after 11 o'clock at night. Your parents probably told you that growing up. It's true. And um, we had been drinking most of the day, most of the night. And we ended up way out of town. We were in a pickup truck. Of course we were. We were in Okeechobee, Florida. Redneck capital of the world. And we ended up way out of town. We pulled off the road uh, beside Kissimmee River Bridge. Kissimmee River Bridge was, uh, on that particular road, was a, is a, was a pretty good-sized bridge. It was, uh, it was pretty long. It was a little over 70 feet high at its, uh, at its highest point. I know that because I jumped off it one time, um, although that was in the daytime and uh, a little less influence from Mr. Miller, if you know what I mean. Um, but that night, it was, it was dark. I, I, there were no lights on the bridge. Uh, as best I can remember, there was, there was not even any moon that night, any moonlight. It was, it was dark. It was late. And I don't remember if it was a dare. I don't remember if it was a bet. I don't remember if it was simply my stupidity. But... I got up on the guardrail of that bridge, which was made out of concrete. It was, it was probably about yay wide. So it wasn't like one of those metal things. It was a concrete guardrail, maybe about yay wide. I got up on that guardrail, and I walked the full 
distance of that bridge, basically in a drunken stupor. Uh, did I mention this was uh, pre-Jesus days? <laughs> okay, I hope I did. Basically walked across that bridge in a drunken stupor with the dark, gator-infested waters of the Kissimmee River about 70 feet below me. There is, I'm convinced, there is absolutely no reason I should not have fallen to my death that night. No reason. Nobody is that lucky when they are in that condition. I am convinced that it purely was an act of the grace of God that spared me that night from my own stupidity and lostness. I didn't come to know Christ as my Savior. I didn't surrender my life to Jesus Christ until several years later. But I am convinced that I experienced the salvation of God in my life in a very practical way that night on that bridge. Salvation. Let's talk about that a little bit this morning. If you brought a copy of God's Word, open it please to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be reading this morning verses 12 through 30, through the end of chapter 2. We're not going to deal with all of that today. We're going to break this up into two parts. As I said, I'll be gone next week, but when I come back, we'll finish looking at the rest of it. But I want to read to you 12 through 30 so you kind of get a feel for the context. Remember, this is a letter that Paul is writing to the church in Philippi. And we're really kind of right in the middle of this letter now. This really is getting into the heart of the letter to the church in Philippi. Uh, the text is up on the screen as well if you, didn't happen to, uh, if you don't have it on your phone or you didn't bring a, a hard copy. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. So then, my beloved, notice there's a transition there. We'll talk about that in a minute. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence... Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation." among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of Christ, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Paul says, by your actions, it's going to show that I didn't waste my time investing in you. But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, even if I'm going to die, he says, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ. We talked about that the first week. Many of Paul's co-workers and co-laborers had abandoned him while he was in prison but not Timothy. Verse 22, But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately 
as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my needs. The church in Philippi had sent Epaphroditus to Paul while he was in prison. They had taken a love offering to him. They had, they had taken whatever all they took to minister to him while he was in prison. Epaphroditus was the messenger from Philippi to Paul. Now Paul sending him back to Philippi. Because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death. But God had mercy on him. And not on him only but also on me. So that I would not have sorrow upon sorrows. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Father, I thank you again for this letter I thank you for the heart of Paul, which really uh, comes out here. It does all through his letters, but there's such a personal part in here uh, that we're going to be talking about in a couple of weeks, more that aspect of it, Father God. But I just, I thank you for the truth of this word, and I'm asking you to speak to our hearts and our lives today. Each man, woman, boy, and girl in this place, they, they have their own uh, life issues and life situations. All of us do, but we have a God who loves us and desires to accomplish His purposes for our life. So as we talk about that today, Father, may our hearts, may our minds, may our ears, and our spirits be open to what You would say. May You receive the glory in Christ's strong name. Amen. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 30. As I said a moment ago, we're not going to deal with all of it today. As a matter of fact, we're just going to deal with verses 12 and 13 today. But over the next couple of sessions when we're together, we're going, I'm going to show you uh, some different aspects, four different aspects uh, in regard to our life and this idea of Christ being our heartbeat from what Paul says here in the latter part of Philippians chapter 2. Those, those four areas that we'll be discussing uh, uh, will be uh, action, attitude, attraction, and affection. Those are the four areas that we're going to look at uh, this week and then two weeks from now. Action, attitude, attraction, and affection. But we begin today with the action step. The action step for a, a fully devoted follower of Jesus, Christ being our heartbeat. And based on what we're reading in Philippians chapter 2, the BP squared today, the big picture, biblical principle, looks like this. When Christ is our heartbeat, salvation just works. If you'd like to take notes, by the way, there is an outline on the back. I do leave some blanks. If you'd rather just follow along, great. Thank you for that as well. When Christ is our heartbeat, salvation just works. Now, uh, because verse 12 opens with so then, or some translations have therefore, or you may even have some other ones, but because verse 12 opens with that, it's clearly a transition point in the text. Uh, and this has already happened earlier in the text, but Paul is transitioning into a new 
area of thought, if you will. But the area of thought is connected to what he's just said in the immediate context, what he's just said in verses 10 and 11, where he's just talked about the fact that uh, Jesus Christ is, is king, that he is, uh, he says that, that someday every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore... Because of that, because someday every knee will bow, someday every tongue will confess, because of that, Paul says, my beloved, you should obey. You should obey. Now, I think it's, uh, I think most of you would agree with this statement. The idea of obeying, obedience, is not a very popular subject in the culture in which we live. We live in a culture and at a time when when radical individualism rules the day. Do y'all know what I'm talking about? It's my life. I can live it the way I want, when I want, how I want, on my terms, and no one else has a right to tell me how to live that life. And so when someone begins to talk about the idea of, of submitting or coming up under some authority and obeying that authority, it, it, doesn't, it really doesn't sit well in the culture in which we live. And yet, obedience or obeying is a very common thing or should be a very common thing in our culture, uh, those of you who are grown as a child or those of you that, that have children, those of you that aren't children, did you not learn? Were you not taught from the earliest age that children should obey their parents, right? They should come up under the authority of their parents. Weren't, weren't we taught that? Most of us obey the traffic laws. Some of us obey the traffic laws. But any of us that, that don't obey the traffic laws, we, we risk the... Uh, potential for consequences for disobeying the traffic laws, right? Right? Natural laws are obeyed. If, if, you, if you go downtown and you climb the, the PNC building, downtown Raleigh, and you say, I don't care about no stinking law of gravity. I'm going to jump off. I'm not going to obey it. Listen, you can ignore it, but you are going to flat out wish you hadn't. Get it? Get it flat, flat. But here's the deal. Our flesh, and I talked about this last week. I talked about the flesh a lot last week. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 7. Our flesh fights against the, the things of the Spirit. So our flesh fights against the idea of obeying or submitting to the authority of God in our life. It just happens. But if you're here as a fully devoted follower of Jesus, we have some motivations to obey, to place ourselves under the authority of God. We have a couple of different motivations, at least, that Paul has just mentioned in Philippians chapter 2. It, just previously in the verses, we actually looked at them last week, but he's just mentioned some of those things. And one of those uh, motivations is this, appreciation for what he has done. That is a motivation for you and I to obey God. It's appreciation for what he has done. And he's, he's just talked about it up earlier in verse 8, where it, it says, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God uh, took on flesh, and he took on flesh so that he could be the substitutionary atonement for my sins. And in, in gratitude for, for that, in appreciation for what he has done for me, I should place myself up under his authority. 
How, how can I not be grateful? I was deserving of death. I, I was a sinner. That's what I deserved in my life. And God took on flesh. He went to a cross. He died in my place. Even death on a cross, as Paul writes there in Philippians chapter 2. And appreciation should be a natural expression from my life. But as the old saying goes, maybe you've heard this, talk is cheap. It's easy to say I'm grateful or I appreciate, but it's another thing to show appreciation. In this case, appreciation for what God has done. It should be a motivation in my life to obey Him. Second motivation is this, acknowledgement of who He is. Paul goes on there in verse 10 and 11. He says, therefore, God has highly exalted Him and given Him the name that is above every name. Just read that verse a moment. That name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess to the glory of God, the Father. Acknowledgement of who Jesus is. And ladies and gentlemen, who Jesus is, is God. You remember I said last week, if you were here, that God the Son has always existed for all of eternity with God the Father and with God the Spirit. But 2,000 years ago, God the Son willingly took on flesh just said that, submitted himself to death, experienced all that went with, by the way, taking on flesh, hunger and and thirst and pain and suffering and, and death. He took that on. He took on mortality so that you and I could take on immortality. He took on death temporarily so that you and I could take on life eternally. That's the appreciation part when I recognize that. But because of that, Paul says, because of his death and because of the fact that he didn't stay dead but rose from the dead, according to 1 Corinthians 15, viewed by more than 500 eyewitnesses, because of that, God is giving the name that is above every name. It's acknowledgement of who he is. And that acknowledgement should cause me to say, God, I, I do need to submit my life to you. So it's appreciation for what he has done, it's acknowledgement for who he is, and it's motivation to obey. So, what does it look like when we begin to talk about obey or obedience? What does that look like in our lives as a fully devoted follower of Jesus? Well, I'm going to give you two or three ideas here this morning. The first one, it looks like this. Our salvation works. Again, verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation. But now, or so then, or because of, you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation. Paul says, to the church in Philippi, he says, I know, I know that this is, not just, um, this is not just a show for you. Because this is not just when I'm there that you all of a sudden you act all, all Jesus-like. It's not just like on Sunday morning that you, oh yeah, we gather and we, we're wonderful. No, Paul says, I know it's not just that. I know that you, that you want to obey all the time. Paul's not saying that the church in Philippi is perfect. They're not. What he is saying is that the church in Philippi desires to honor God, that the majority of people in the church in Philippi desire to honor God with their life. Now, maybe that's a good place to just stop and remind you that it's not a bad idea to occasionally just back up and ask myself that very question. Do I want to honor God with my life? 
That's not a bad question to ask. Is it truly my heart's desire to honor God with my life? And am I willing to spend my life to accomplish that purpose in my life? Is that what my life is about? To honor God. Paul says you should obey. And the way you obey is to understand to work out your salvation. The word work out there is an imperative in the, Greek, in the original Greek language. In other words, Paul's not giving them a suggestion. It is imperative that they work out their salvation. So the question then becomes, what does work out mean? What does that mean when Paul says work out your salvation? Does that mean that, that Jesus kind of got this thing started? You know, Jesus went to the cross and, you know, yeah, he did his part. And, and now I have to do my part if I'm going to, you know, really have this salvation, if I'm going to uh, keep this salvation. Is that, is, that what you, is that what Paul means when he says you've got you to work out your salvation? Does he mean it's not quite finished and there's, there's more I got to do? No. That would be a work salvation, not a salvation that works. Let me remind you of what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. Some of you are very familiar with this verse. We, I use this verse a lot. Uh, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been... Well, by the way, would you just read this out loud with me? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So whatever Paul means when he says work out your salvation, he can't mean work... To, like, make your salvation. He can't mean that because he'd be contradicting himself there and numerous other places in the Bible that makes it very clear that salvation is a grace gift given by God to us. So, we're back to the question, what does Paul mean by work out your salvation? The word work out had two definitions in the Greek language. The word that's used, that's translated work out. To do, work, finish, accomplish. Now, we already established, by the way, that it can't mean finish in the sense of God didn't do enough. His word makes it clear. So, it's not that idea of finish. To do, work, finish, accomplish. It also had the idea of to till or cultivate land. And I really think we can kind of see both of those understandings in what Paul is saying here. When he begins to say, you have to work out your salvation. Let's see if I can explain it this way. There are basically three stages to your salvation. Now, hang with me, all right? I'm going to get into some stuff here, but there are basically three stages to your salvation. There is, first, this idea. There is salvation from sin positionally. We're saved from the penalty of sin. When I come to understand that I am a sinner, that's what the Bible says. I'm sorry, that's just what it says. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. The Bible also makes it clear that there is a cost, there is a penalty for that sin. And that penalty is death or eternal separation from God in a place called hell. Romans 6.23, the wages or the cost or what you've earned for your sin is death. Fortunately for us, that verse has a second part. But the gift, notice the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
So when I come to understand that I am a sinner and that that sin has separated from me from God and there is absolutely nothing I can do about it, there's not a thing I can do about it. And because I believe that Jesus Christ came and in my place sacrificed his life so that I could be redeemed, forgiven, adopted into the family of God, my position has changed. You understand? My position has changed from hell-bound, hell-deserving sinner to child of God, adopted into the family of God, bound for the kingdom of heaven. That's my position. That's salvation positionally, saved from the very penalty of sin. And all of us ought to say, good deal. But there is also this second idea of salvation. Salvation from sin, we're, we're saved from the penalty of sin. Go on, thank you. Salvation from sin practically. We're saved from the power of sin. Are y'all with me? Salvation from sin practically. We're saved from the power of sin. Here's what I mean. As I said a moment ago, even if I'm in a relationship with Jesus Christ, I still have my flesh. And and there is this struggle between the flesh and the Spirit of God working in in me. And as I said a moment ago, Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 7, very candidly, about that struggle to do right, but I do wrong. I want to do right, I do wrong. And Paul talks about that. So even though I may be in relationship with God, even though I may be saved from the penalty of sin, there is still this struggle going on in my life. There's still temptation. There's still the, the, the allure, the draw to, to give in to that sin. But when this is really where this idea of working out your salvation begins to take its effect, ladies and gentlemen. When, when Christ came into my life, the Spirit of God began to, began to work in my life and began to bring change in my life. As I surrendered more of my life to Him, as I began to study His Word, as I began to pray, as I began to seek His face and understand what it meant to be redeemed, what it meant to have salvation, as that began to happen, I discovered something remarkable. God began to deliver me from sin. Not that it's not there, not that temptation's not there, not that we don't have to always be on guard and be careful and you know, be strong in the Lord, but I, I began to discover that, that sins that used to be besetting, that used to, be, that used to plague me, God began to deliver me us from the very power of sin in our life. We're talking about everyday practical salvation so that I don't have to give in to sin. I don't have to live in the flesh. I don't have to lust or, or, or have greed or, or lie or, or not want to honor God, whatever all it might be. It's delivered from sin practically. And then there's one final uh, idea or aspect of salvation, and that is this. Salvation from sin perfectly. Or you could say completely, but then it wouldn't be three Ps. But it's delivered from sin perfectly or completely. It's the idea of salvation. We're saved from the presence of sin. Perfectly, completely, we're saved from the presence of sin. Here's what I mean. Right now, you and I still live in a sin-cursed world, do we not? All you got to do is turn on the TV. All you got to do is walk downtown. All you got to do is hear a news report. All you got to do is see how people act or read what somebody has done to realize that we are still neck deep in sin in this world in which we live. Right? It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. I just saw on the news yesterday where this town in, in, uh, in Syria, I think it was, that was massacred by the troops and genocides that go on and rapes that take place and murder, all, all this. It, it, 
Nobody has to be convinced that we still live in a sin-saturated world. But ladies and gentlemen, can I just remind you that there is a day coming, as Paul said, that someday every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess, those in heaven, those on the earth, and those under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, there's coming a day, ladies and gentlemen, about to get excited, when Jesus Christ is going to come back and establish his kingdom on this earth. A kingdom of righteousness, a kingdom of good, a kingdom where sin is kicked to the curb and will have no more influence or part in this world. We will be delivered from the very presence of sin. I can't even imagine a world like that. I can't even hardly imagine a a world where no sin exists whatsoever, but the word of God on the authority of the word of God says that day is coming and you and I will be delivered from the very presence of sin in our lives. Now, if you are here, if you happen to be here today or somebody happened to be listening to the podcast and you might be saying, listen, to tell you the truth... I don't really care about all those other aspects of salvation. I just care about getting into heaven. I just care about that one. Well, since you've said the truth to me, let me say the truth to you. If that is your mindset going into this, if Jesus is a a get-out-of-hell-free card that you just stick in your back pocket and when you get to the pearly gates, you can... Got my Jesus card? Oh, come on in. Listen, if that's your thought process in this, ladies and gentlemen, I'm just going to be honest with you. I mean, I know ultimately God is the judge and all that stuff, but based on the authority of his word, I'm just saying to you that it's a very, it is a very great possibility that you are not saved, if that's your mindset. And, oh, I, don't, I don't care, I just want to, I want to get into heaven, live my life the way I want, but I got Jesus, believe in Jesus. No, our salvation works. It affects our lives. It's a part of who we are when it's genuine, when it's true. It's not just some spiritual concept It's a practical mindset. It affects my life. Or it's not real. You may may have all the answers. You may know all the answers. But that's not the same as understanding that when I commit my life to Jesus Christ, it means obedience to Him. And if you know Christ is your Savior, you will work out your salvation. And here's how I know you will. The second part, real quick. Our salvation works because God is at work in us. Look what Paul says. That latter part of verse 12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who who is at work in you. Paul says, Paul says, hey, get your minds around this one. You can work out, your salvation can be utilized and, and, and advanced in your life. It can, be, it can be a practical part of your life. It's going to bring you to eventually into the presence of God and, and, and the absence of sin. You can use your salvation. It's part of your life. And the reason it's going to work in your life is because God is at work in life. Because of the mind-blowing thought that the creator of the universe, ladies and gentlemen, the creator of the universe... The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who spoke the worlds into existence and who holds them together by his might. That same God has chosen to dwell in me and work in me. If that doesn't make you tremble, I don't know what will. And by the way, it's not trembling, it's not fear in the sense of, ooh, I'm scared that God's working. No, it's it's fear in the sense of, It is an incredibly humbling thought that God Almighty would want to change me into a man of God. What an incredibly humbling thought. The psalmist, Psalm 8, 
says it much more beautifully than I ever could. When I look at the night sky and I see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what are mere mortals that you should think about them? Human beings that you should care for them. God, I can't even believe you would do this. But he did. Listen, you guys, I hope you know I'm not... I'm not trying to, I'm not bragging on myself. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. But I stand here and I can say this to you. I know, I know, I know that God has worked powerfully in my life. I know that because I know who I used to be before Christ. I know that because I know how I used to live. I know what used to matter to me. I know, I know what used to be the priorities of my life. And I know that only God could bring about the work that has been done in my life. Not, I can remember a time, Cindy and I, in our, we were in our mid-20s, and, and, we had, and God was, was beginning to work in our life. We were in our mid-20s, and we started attending a church, and we went to a, a small group uh, outing. And while we were there, we had dinner, and it, you know, it was nice. I was a little anxious, you know, because I was a new, new kid on the block there. And, uh, but, but we had dinner together, and then afterwards, we, we played the newlywed game. How many of y'all remember what the newlywed game is? Y'all remember, some of y'all remember that? I don't know. I don't think it's still on. But newlywed game, uh, where the, your spouses would go out, and they would ask you a series of questions, and then bring your spouse back in and ask them the same questions, see how well you knew each other. And I was scared to death because one of the questions they asked was, what's your favorite Bible verse? And I didn't have a favorite Bible verse. I didn't, I didn't know any Bible verse. Well, I knew John 3.16, but some other clown had already taken that one. <laughs> Couldn't jump on that bandwagon. And I was scared to death that somebody was going to ask me. And I said, oh, what, what are some of those books? How, how many chapters? Uh, scared to death that I would be asked a question about God's Word. You, you ask my wife. I, I didn't like to talk a lot. Y'all think, well, God sure changed that. Guess what? I, I didn't like to talk a lot. <laughs> I didn't like crowds. Now I love crowds. I want to see this crowd multiply three, four times on Saturday and Sunday. And the idea of standing before people and teaching them the Word of God, when I didn't even know, my wife put tabs in my Bible so I could learn where the books were. All I'm saying is, God is at work in you. Be in awe of it. Be humbled by it. But embrace it. God, you, all I can tell you is, folks, here's, here's what it was. When I gave my life to Christ, i got to quit. I know. When I gave my life to Christ, I gave my life to Christ. You, y'all understand what I'm saying? Yeah, and, I, and, I, and I prayed. I said, God, I don't, here I am. I don't know what you can do with me, but, but here I am. I, I was just, you know, a 20-something-year-old, worked for Seifert Feed Company, drove a Jeep CJ5. God, I don't know what you can do with me, but whatever you can do with me, here it is. I'm giving you my life. You do whatever you want to do. I, I, think, I, think, I, <laughs> I think God smiles when somebody says that to him. I think God says, I'm so glad you said that, my child. And I think he probably also says, now let's see if you really mean that, my child. <laughs> Listen, God is at work in you. All right, real quick, real quick, one final idea. There's a lot more to say about that. One, one, one final idea. Our salvation works because God is at work in us to accomplish his work. Look at verse 13 again. For it is God who is at work in you, watch this, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. By the way, good pleasure there doesn't mean that you and I are some sort of uh, actors on a cosmic stage and that we're just playing out this, this role for God's amusement. No, that is not God's good pleasure. You can read about some of the uh, the 
the gods of mythology of the Greeks and the, and the Romans, and, and they had gods who would, who would toy with human beings and use human do- beings like a toy and then discard them when they were done with them. And cynics and skeptics have tried to place that charge on God for centuries. But anybody who would even halfway read the Word of God with an open mind would realize that the love of God would never allow him to treat us that way. The love of God compels him, strains him to want to involve himself in our lives, even to the point of being willing to die for us. And he is at work in us to accomplish his purposes. It is what every person, I've got to wrap this thing up. It is what every person is looking for in life. I want to be fulfilled. I want to be content. I want to have joy. I want to have purpose. I want to have meaning. I want to know that when I check out of this life, it will have mattered for something other than just taking up space in a cemetery or a jar if you're going to be cremated. I want to think that, that something about my life will stand for more than that. And God says, yes, I've got more. You've come to the right place. I want to work in and through you and what I can accomplish you can't even begin to imagine if you'll just place yourself under my authority. You'll experience all that you're looking for in life. And until you come to that realization, ladies and gentlemen, I'll wind it up. Until you come to that realization, you will continue to look for all those things in life. Because everybody wants them. Everybody wants joy. Everybody wants happiness. Everybody wants contentment. Everybody wants fulfillment. Everybody wants purpose. You'll continue to look for all of those things. And you'll look for them in all the wrong places. And you will never find them. You won't find them in another relationship. You won't find them in climbing the corporate ladder. You won't find them in a nicer car or a bigger house or, or, or some thrill-seeking activity. You won't find them in any of those other things. You know why? Because God created you for a relationship with Him. That's how He made you. And until you realize that and place yourself under His authority in your life, you'll never have everything that He desires for you to have. Our salvation just works when Christ is our heartbeat. When Christ is our heartbeat, salvation just works. As we heard Pastor Clay explain today, our salvation is personal, practical, and someday it will be perfect or complete when Jesus returns and establishes His kingdom on earth. In the meantime, though, God is working in us to accomplish purposes that we can't even imagine but that will bring contentment and fulfillment to our lives. As Pastor Clay reminded us today, it's a pretty humbling thought that the creator of the universe would choose to work in us. It just shows you how much he must love us. Submitting to his authority and obeying him is the least we can do for all that he has done for us. We're glad you joined us for this week's Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our everyday lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sunday mornings at 1030 at the Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540 Exit 7. And we welcome anyone and everyone who is looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. I'm not the water, I'm not the bread, but I know the place where your soul is fed.
Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org.